He is risen. Amen. I love Easter morning. Isn't it great? Uh, isn't it special to come as a body of believers and worship a risen Christ? Amen. If you guys want to be turning to John 20, that's where we're going to be uh, in a few moments. Uh, you know, I, I heard a, uh, a story from Max Lucado this week that touched me. Uh, Max Lucado is an author and pastor in San Antonio, great author, and um, he, uh, he talks about a missionary in Brazil. Uh, and this particular missionary was uh, ministering in one of the remotest parts of the jungle, uh, remotest parts of the Brazilian jungle, and he had to cross this river to get to this tribe where he was ministering. And he got to the tribe only to find that they were being uh, just, uh, uh, de just desecrated by this uh, contagious, deadly disease. And the missionary realized that if he couldn't get them to a nearby medical center very quickly, they would all die. Now, they were being ravaged by this disease. Well, the only problem was they had to go across the river to get to the medical village. And this particular tribe believed that the river was inhabited by evil spirits. They believed that the river represented death, and if you went in the river, you would surely die. So they stayed far away from the river. And so this missionary told them, no, it's not true. I've got good news. I swam through the river to get to you. They wouldn't believe him. And so he said, no, come with me. And he took them down to the river, and he, he put his hand in the water, and they gasped. And he took his hand out, and he said, see, it's fine. And still they would not enter the waters of the river. And so he waded in knee-deep, and he splashed around in the water. And he said, do you see, it's, it's fine. And still they would not enter the water. So the missionary, in one last gasp, he dove underneath the water, swam underwater all the way to the other side, then came up on the other side, arms victorious, and said, do you see? And the tribe broke out in cheers, and they followed him across the river to the medical center where they received treatment and were saved. One man plunging into what was certain death, emerging on the other side victorious, not only saved their life, but changed their life. Amen? At the essence of the Christian faith is the understanding that one man plunged into death and emerged on the other side victorious. And that by nature of his resurrection, we are saved and our lives are radically changed. We're going to see in the scriptures today in John chapter 20, four groups that encounter, I love this, a risen Christ. We've been in the life and ministry of Jesus pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection these last few months. Now we're going to step into post-resurrection just for a scene. And we're going to see four groups of people encounter a risen Christ. And I want you to pay close attention to the change that takes place in their lives when they meet a risen Jesus. And here's what I've been praying all week. That we this morning would meet and encounter, whether for the first time or just fresh again, the risen Christ, and that our lives would never be the same. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we're about to enter the pages of Scripture and an incredible scene, a scene that honestly is, is, is hard to even imagine or believe, like a tried to put myself in this one this week, and I couldn't quite get there. Lord, it is hard to imagine being Mary and the disciples and Thomas and Peter in this particular scene. And yet, Lord, we see that something happened to them. It's recorded historically in the scriptures and is borne out by the rest of their lives that something happened that not only saved their lives but changed their lives. Lord, would you bring that truth to the surface? Would you, would you meet us front and center, each one of us individually this morning? with the truth of an empty tomb, a resurrection that would change the course of human history. Father, I pray that as the word goes forth, that you would speak, that you would increase. Father, I must decrease. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
John chapter 20, and you guys can stay seated because I'm going to work in pieces through the whole text this morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. A little hint, that's John. He refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. You can do what you will with that. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Pay attention to that. She has no idea. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Typical Peter. He saw the linen linen cloths lying there and and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, listen closely, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Understand, Mary sees a tomb and has no idea where the body is. John, Peter, see an empty tomb, and they don't yet understand the scripture. So it's, it's, it's not this, they don't bust into celebration. They're, they're, not, they're not, you know, spinning in a circle declaring he is risen, he is risen indeed to one another. Um, they, they are confused, uh, probably discouraged. Like, just, just Friday afternoon, they saw their best friend and leader crucified on a cross. Saturday, now Sunday morning, they have no idea where the body even is. Like, this has gone from bad to worse right now in our story. And the disciples, it says in verse 10, went back to their homes. Not celebratory. Went back confused, went back discouraged, went back unsure, uncertain. Like what is going on was the presiding emotion right here in the text. And I want you to see what happens next. But Mary, verse 11, she stood. So she comes back to the tomb. She stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she stooped to look into the tomb, And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, Mary has no idea that he is risen at this point. She just knows he's gone. And let me push pause real quick and say, you guys know Mary Magdalene just a little bit? Now, she's had a troubled past. Uh, This is a woman, when Jesus found her, it said, uh, in in the Bible, it says she was possessed by seven demons. Uh, Many scholars speculate that she was indeed the woman uh, who was about to be stoned for her adultery when Jesus stepped in and said, let you who has never sinned cast the first stone, that she was indeed the one he rescued. And whether that was her or not, what we do know is she had had an incredibly painful past, and yet Jesus Christ singularly had accepted her for who she is. In the midst of her wretchedness, he saw her, he wasn't confused, um, but he loved her, and his love changed her and cleansed her to the extent that she literally dropped her past and followed him and calls him, even to this passage, Lord. Okay? So when they crucified Jesus, Mary went somewhere dark. I mean, Mary ached and hurt because there was no one else who had ever loved and accepted Mary except Jesus. And now they don't know where the body is, and Mary is in a place that uh, some, uh, some scholars say, the, the dark place of your soul. It's that, it's that moment when something has happened so tragic to you or someone you love that you don't know if you will literally make it through. And I know that in this life, most of you, if not all of you, have probably been there. There's some young folks in there, and if you hadn't, you will. That's life. We get in those places of literal despair. 
In the verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the words of this verse ring true in those moments. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, we only have hope in this life, not in the life to come, we are a people most to be pitied. In other words, if there is no resurrection, there's no hope after the grave. And if there's no hope after the grave, then really there's no hope on this side of the grave. And if there's no hope on this side of the grave, then we are a people most to be pitied, a people in despair. That's where Mary is right here. You with me? Despairing. And she sees these angels and says, I don't know where they are. They've taken them away. And she's in a place of despair in verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Now give her a break. She's been weeping for about a day and a half. Uh, it's still the middle of the night, dark outside, and she's just had a conversation with two angels, okay? So ye cast the first stone, all right? Um, doesn't recognize him right here, and I get that. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she fires back. Sir, if you've carried him away, Tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. You see her state right here? You see, where, you see where Mary is? Mary is in despair, desperate, heartache, hurting. Watch this. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Like in that moment when he called her name, she knew now it was Jesus. And it wasn't like mangled, half-dead, wrapped in burial cloth Jesus that had somehow wandered out of the tomb. No, she would have recognized him the first time. This was Jesus Christ fully alive. This was a different scene than anything she had ever experienced. This was a resurrected, risen Lord that she encounters. And he says something to her. Mary, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Idea being, Mary, do not weep. Don't cling to me as if I'm leaving you for good. I'm not. I'm going to the Father. My Father and yours. In other words, because I've risen, Mary, this life is not all there is. I'm going somewhere, and you will one day come there with me for all of eternity, meaning, Mary, because I've risen, you have hope in the midst of heartache. Amen? You've got hope in the midst of heartache because he rose again. You guys that know me, um, have heard my testimony, know that my father passed when I was 16 years old. Um, I, Still to this day, there are just the times when I ache deeply. There's just times when I want to catch one more Saturday morning big breakfast with Dad because I want to pick his brain. There's times I literally find myself thinking, I wonder what my dad would say about this. And I can only speculate. There's times I wish we could take a walk and I could press into him on some of the difficult issues of life that sometimes I don't know what to do. And I long for those conversations, and even more than I long for my conversations with my father, I long for my boys to know my father. I long to see um, what they would call him. Um, I long to see how he would relate to them. Uh, I long to see him teach them to play ball in the way he taught me to play ball. Long for that. And recognize I will never see that, this side of glory. 
And the Easter morning truth that I was struck in the face with this week is because he is risen, because he lives, my boys will know my father one day, that they will be able to toss a football with him one day on streets that are gold, on a day that the word says will not give way tonight. So the Easter morning truth is that because he lives, I have hope in the midst of heartache. And I know some of you were there this morning. I know specifically some of you were there this morning, having been through incredible emotional heartache in the midst of hurt, in the midst of times that you think, when will it ever end? And what you need to hear this morning is that because of an empty tomb and a risen Christ, when you encounter him, you have hope in the midst of heartache. Amen? And the story doesn't end. Matter of fact, it gets better. On the evening of that, uh, verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I love it. From basking in her heartache to brimming with hope one verse later, all because he called her name. Did you hear it? You encounter him, he calls your name, heartache to hope in an instant. Well, look at the next verse. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, now let me just pause there and say, what is going on? Like, the disciples are gathered in a, um, uh, in a room and they bolted themselves in. And it said for fear of the Jews. Like, the Jews that crucified Jesus, they're worried about recognizing that, hey, these guys were with Jesus. They killed him. They might kill us. They bolted themselves in fear. You get this? Now, the reason that's a little weird, and if you've really been tuned in as we've studied the life of Christ, uh, you, you may have some question marks coming off, and they should be. Like, these guys had given three years of their life to following Christ. They knew him like no one else knew him. They heard him teach more than anybody else, and on several occasions, he had given them a specific teaching. You know what it is? Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 20 through 22. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. By the way, this wasn't a one-time like bomb he dropped on him. He over and over told them, They're going to crucify me and I'm going to be raised three days later. And it has to happen according to the law. And yet, when he was crucified, like they weren't connecting the dots quickly enough. Like they didn't quite see the full picture. That's why they're bolted in. You would expect these guys with the teaching that Jesus given them, the moment he crucified them, I mean, it's, it's got to be a shocking and horrifying thing to see anyone crucified, much less Jesus. But you would think they'd walk away from that place and go, all right, boys, set your watches. He said third day. What's today? Pete, Friday. All right, Saturday's coming. Sunday, that's day three. Sunday morning, meet you guys right here. Like somebody bring some extra folding chairs. Who's picking up the lattes? We're getting here early. Uh, we're going to have tombside seats for the greatest miracle in the history of mankind. We can't wait. No, these guys are bolted in a room afraid, fearing for their lives. You think they get it yet? Don't get it. If we were to characterize their emotion in, in a couple words right here, it would be uh, fear, afraid of the Jews, um, confusion. You with me? Afraid, confused. That's where they are, and watch what happens when they encounter Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them. By the way, he, he didn't knock on the door. He didn't like, hey, guys, let me in. Like, he just materialized. Awesome. He came and stood among them and said, 
peace be with you. I think he chose those words carefully. Like, when you, whenever, if you're ever going to materialize among people, the first thing you should say is, peace be with you. All right? Just make a note on that. Uh, because it's going to freak him out. And these guys are bolted in. They're afraid. And all of a sudden, it's Jesus. And so peace be with you is very appropriate. Like, don't freak out. It's me. And I have no idea. I don't know if it was stunned silence. I don't know if it was uh, shock and awe. But here's what happens. When he said this, he showed him his hands like, hey, it's me. And look, 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 look. Don't forget, it's me. Look, hands, side scars, you see? And something gets going. These disciples are going, wait a minute. Wait, this is Jesus. Not dead Jesus, not crucified. This is Jesus alive. And maybe they're remembering, yes, that's right. He said he'd be raised the third day. Wait, it's, uh, it's Sunday. He's raised. He is risen. Watch this. Then the disciples were glad, your Bible, depending on translation, might say overjoyed or filled with joy when they saw the Lord. So, one moment, fear and confusion, encountered the risen Christ, overjoyed. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father sent me, even so I am seeing you. I don't think he was just being redundant or repetitive here. I think the idea is now, look, peace be with you, in the sense that I am peace, Jesus talking, and I am with you. And now you take this message of my making peace between you and the Father, and you take it to the world. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. Now, if you know anything about church history, you know that these guys ran with this message. Amen? I literally think the most um, greatest apologetic of our faith is that there were 11 guys bolted in a room in fear of their lives. And something, friends, happened. Like something happened that, that, that emboldened these men where they became the front line heralds of the gospel in a day and age of incredible persecution and rejection to the point 10 of the 11 of these guys individually, separate from the group, all alone in different places were martyred in nasty ways. There was nothing sane about the way these guys were killed, flayed by the sword, whipped and beaten to death, pushed off a temple wall and clubbed, crucified upside down. Listen, everyone, John was the only one who avoided a martyr's death, and he was boiled in hot water and exiled to Patmos. Not one, not one of the men bolted and afraid were willing to say this moment did not happen. Not one. They just wouldn't. They said, I don't know what to do. I guess you're going to have to kill me because it happened. I was there, and I saw the scars. I can't help but imagine on an Easter Sunday in modern-day America, some of you guys um, rolled in here, uh, not really a churchgoer. It's Easter. Maybe you thought you should. Maybe someone invited you. And your spiritual journey would be characterized by mostly fear, confusion, don't really get it. This morning's kind of a Hail Mary for you. Let me just say, the application in the lives of the disciples is this. When you encounter the risen Christ, fear and confusion turns into something. And those of you that know Christ know exactly what it turns into. You ready? It turns into peace. Peace is yours. A peace that passes no understanding and makes no sense to our psyche. Amen? And not only peace... But abiding joy, like overwhelmed with joy. So what happens? Fear and confusion to peace and joy. Watch this. Now, 
Thomas, verse 24, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, we've seen the Lord. In other words, Thomas just missed that whole episode. You with me? He just missed it. Bummer, huge bummer. And the other disciples say, you won't believe it, we saw the Lord. He says, look, um, okay, but unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe that. I'll never believe. You with me? He just says what many of us would say. Ah, guys, like, I don't know if y'all are messing with me or y'all a little crazy. Uh, We hadn't slept much, but guys, if I see what you saw, so be it. I'll believe. And let me show you that there's a place for the skeptic in the heart of our Lord. Because eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Same scene, same context, same message, only difference, Thomas. Here's what this piece of our text shows us. That Jesus has a place in his heart for even the coldest critic. That if you will... Search for the risen Christ. He'll meet you in the midst of your doubt because he yearns for you to know that it is true. Watch what he says to Thomas. Put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. That's what Thomas said he'd have to do, remember? Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, if I'm Thomas right here, I'm going, hey, man, it's cool. Like, like you had me at hello. I don't need to put my hand into your side. That's a little gross now that I look at you. Um, I'm in, man. I see it. I get it. Thomas believes. Matter of fact, I love, his, I, I love this. The prayer of Thomas is so good. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. When you encounter the risen Christ, meets you in your doubt and gives you faith to believe. Amen? Some of you thought you would never, ever, ever, ever believe in the silly story of a risen son of God. And yet now you sit here brimming with faith, undeniably something has happened in your life, and you just smile thinking, I was like Thomas, and the Lord found me in the midst of my doubt, and when I encountered a risen Christ, he gave me faith to believe. Now I know it's true. That's Thomas. And that's where some of you are this morning. i tell you a little story. I was a uh, played baseball for one semester at Vanderbilt University. Now, don't over-glorify that. I was only there for one semester. There was a reason for that. Um, <laughs> we don't need to go into that. Um, but I'll say this. Uh, one of my teammates was a guy named Kyle Flubacher. Kyle Flubacher was from Chicago. And uh, quick hands, middle infielder, great player. Uh, he was a skeptic of all skeptics. I'd never seen anybody as hard-hearted towards the Lord. He couldn't decide, depending on the day of the week, if he was an atheist or an agnostic. In other words, he didn't think there was a God, but he couldn't lay the gavel down, so he said there might be a God, but we certainly can't know him. That's where he was. And Kyle also happened to be incredibly intelligent, uh, way smarter than me. Let me just go ahead and get that out of the way. Way smarter. And, I ha- and he became my best friend on the team. I loved him, and the more I loved him, the more I yearned for him to know Jesus. And I felt so helpless. Like, he was so smart and quick-witted and would just slice up all the little arguments of, of why there was a God or wasn't a God. And I mean, I just, it was hard to keep up, so I just began to pray. Like, God, how, how do you soften this guy's heart? And so my first thought was I'll just, you know, I'll play Christian music on the radio because I gave him rides to practice, and maybe that'll start a conversation. And one day he goes, Ken, this music is terrible, and he just turned it off. I was like, that didn't really work. Um, and so uh, I kept praying, and my next thought was, hey, Kyle, would you, uh, would you read the Bible with me? And Kyle goes, yeah, I'll read the Bible with you as long as you'll read some books I've got. I was like, oh, great. Uh, so I said, okay, uh, you know, let's, let's trade books here. And so I give him the Bible. He gives me three or four books about how there is no God. 
And so I begin to read these books, and here's what happened in my life. Um, the more that I read these guys' arguments about how there wasn't a God, the more I felt something in me. Like, it didn't shake my faith at all because I knew something had happened in me and something was happening in me that I, stra- I frankly could not deny. And the more I read, I just felt a sense of compassion towards these authors that even all their brilliance, what had happened to me had not happened to them, and they didn't know the truth. At the same time, Kyle was reading the Word of God. And by his power and grace, it's unexplainable to me, the Spirit of God began to work in Kyle's heart over the grounds of the Word of God. And one day, three months later, as we would read and talk and read and talk and read and talk, he called me at 3 a.m. Our practice was at 5 a.m. And uh, so usually about 4.15, he would give me a call to make sure I was on the way. 3 a.m., he calls, and he says, kid, it's time. And I said, Kyle, uh, no, it's not time, bro. It's 3 a.m. We got like another hour, 15. What are you doing? He said, no, it's time. I said, Kyle, it's not time, man. I'm looking at the clock. He said, it's time I want to receive Christ. And I just sprung out of bed. I mean, I was, I could, I didn't even, I left the room with like one pant leg in. I was so, I mean, it's middle of the night anyway. You can pretty much do whatever you want. And I remember driving to get Kyle at 3.10 a.m. and picking him up. And we went to a place overlooking our ball fields. And Kyle prayed the prayer of Thomas. He called Jesus Lord and God. And I watched a heart of stone become a heart of flesh. I watched the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and alive, intersect a doubting Thomas. And I watched a man break and believe. It's exactly what I pray happens in somebody's heart this morning. We're coming to the end of chapter 20, but there's one more character. He doesn't get his own text in this chapter, but he's in the story the whole way. You know who it was? Remember Peter, first one of the tomb, Peter in the huddle the first night, Peter in the huddle the second night. Peter's been there the whole time. And I had to give this one last snapshot because, to be frank, this is the one that that meets me where I am. And um, and if you know the story of Peter, a few days earlier at the Passover meal, he's there with all the disciples. He's professing boldly to all the disciples and to Jesus, hey, even if all these guys shrink away, I never will, Lord. And Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. To which Peter says, Lord, I will never do that. You're mistaken on this one. I would die before I would deny you, Lord. Well, we all know what happened. Jesus was chained. He was led out of the garden. He was led to to trial in the middle of the night. And Peter followed at a distance so as not to be recognized. And yet three times he was recognized. Hey, this guy's from Galilee. He's with Jesus. Three times Peter says, no, I do not know the man. The third time around a charcoal fire, he's accused of knowing Jesus. He says, no, the rooster crows. Jesus looks right at his eyeballs. And Peter turns away, and he goes and he weeps bitterly. I spent time this week thinking about those tears. Those are tears of guilt. Those are tears of unbelievable guilt. And it's guilt over the weight of his sin. Anybody? guilt over the weight of his sin. And so here's what happens, chapter 21. We're not going to go there, but just to to let you know, Peter says, um, hey, guys, I'm going fishing. Even after, even after he saw an empty tomb and the resurrected Christ materialized in front of him several times, he says, I'm going fishing. Not like I'm going fishing this morning, but like I'm going back to fishing. I have failed at following Jesus. Can't do it. Not worthy. Betrayed him publicly. We all know it. I'm done. I'm not worthy to follow Christ. I'm going fishing. Maybe I can't screw that up. Some of the disciples go with him. They fish all night. Jesus on the bank in the morning. You guys catch anything? All night long, not a single fish. No. 
Hey, try throwing your nets over the right side. Who, who is this guy? Who's the random wanderer on the beach that thinks he knows more than a bunch of professional fishermen who have fished right and left all night long? Try the right side. Oh, heck, throw the nets out there. Hey, Pete, yeah, we, uh, we got a problem. What's our problem? We can't pull the nets in. What do you mean we can't pull the nets in? There's so many fish, we can't pull them in. Peter's saying, what's going on? John looks to the horizon where he sees him, and he starts to squint in the darkness. He says, that's Jesus. Peter, head first into the water, swimming like a madman to the shore, expecting to run up, groveling before Christ. Jesus won't let him. I can imagine the embrace, cooks and breakfast on a charcoal fire around which Peter had just denied him and says, Pete, just tell me this. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Pete, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Well, then tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then care for my sheep. And in this beautiful act, three denials, three affirmations, Peter's restored. And he says, Peter, now follow me. Put away the life of the past and follow. Don't go back there. Follow me. In other words, when I died on that cross, Pete, and I rose from the dead, my resurrection was big enough to cover not only your past sin, but your present shame. You are not only forgiven, Peter, you're freed. Live in the freedom you've been given. I have to believe that some of you come in here this Easter morning and your life is so twisted in sin, darkness, secret sin. It's hard for you to be in here this morning. It's, here's what it's hard. It's hard to imagine that a holy God could possibly see you, love you, accept you, forgive you, cleanse you, and pay for you and redeem you. It seems impossible. Others of you, you know what? You've been one of his followers for some time now. And, and you've found yourself strangled in sin. And just like Peter, you cannot raise your eyes to the heavens to even utter a prayer. Here's the Easter morning truth. When you encounter a risen Christ, in the midst of your guilt over the weight of your sin, Jesus showers you with his grace. Amen? Showers you with grace in the midst of your guilt that you might be free to live as he lives. Well, let me round third and head home with this. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus sees me in my wretchedness. Amen? Look, might as well be transparent. It's not that he saw me in my wretchedness. He sees me in it. I'm still in it. And if you guys knew me well enough, you'd be amen in that. He sees me in it, and he sees you in yours. And he sees us in our inability to merit our own righteousness before God. Sees us right where we are. And here is the good news. Are you ready? Loves us. Loves us. Hey, uh, preacher, how do you know that he loves us? Here's how I know he loves us. He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Stay with me right here. In the midst of our sin, God sends his only begotten son, Jesus, to go to the cross as a payment for our sin. Now listen, payment's a key word. 
Why is it a payment? Well, he's paying for something. What is he paying for? He is paying for the wages of sin, which are death. Now, Jesus didn't sin. He doesn't have to pay a thing. He's righteous before God. But he pays a payment for your sin and for mine. Somebody had to die. Jesus took the hit. And he paid it in full. You and I, by virtue of his payment, we got a choice. And every one of us has a choice this morning. The choice is this. Do we trust in our own righteousness before God? In other words, when you stand before a holy God one day to be judged according to your life, do you trust in your righteousness? I don't need Jesus. I'm good enough. And if you choose to trust in your own righteousness, make sure you understand that in that moment you become a slave to the law. And the law says that you must be holy, you must be righteous. Not better than others, not mostly good, not sometimes good, perfect, sinless, spotless. And if you recognize what Paul recognized in Galatians, that if that were possible, Christ wouldn't have even had to die, the other option is you trust in the righteousness of another. His name is Jesus. And in the righteousness of Christ, what you're saying is, I believe he was sinless. I believe he was spotless, the spotless Passover lamb of God. And by trusting in his righteousness, here's what I'm saying, I believe. That he who did not have to die to pay a wage for his own death was just sacrificed to pay a price for mine and for yours. And so by virtue of his atoning sacrifice, because he did it, He could take my sin and my curse on his shoulders and he can impute to me his righteousness. That I am justified, seen as if I am never sinned, declared righteous in the midst of my sin. Because we didn't deserve Christ to die, our salvation would then be holy of grace. Because we receive it by trusting in him fully, it would be holy of faith. So our salvation, we say, is by grace through faith in the risen Christ. And listen to me, gang. When we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. In other words, when we believe I I was not worthy to pay my own price, Jesus was worthy, and he did it, and he rose and conquered sin and death in the grave, then I receive, by virtue of his atoning sacrifice for my sin and my belief in that sacrifice, I receive the exact same thing that Jesus received that day when he left the tomb. New life. New life in Jesus Christ. Amen? Can I tell you why Christians get so excited on Easter? Can I tell you why there's just that like antsy, we kind of want to stand up and like it's just exciting? It's not because of the coming egg hunt. Okay, I'm sorry grandmas, it's not. Um, It's not the pastels and the, you know, it's, it's just not all this other stuff. It's not the bunny, it's not the chocolate. Listen, here is what it is and listen close. It is that if you have encountered a risen Jesus, as have I, Here's what you know. You know something that Mary knows. You know something that the disciples know, that Thomas knows, that Peter knows. You know that he is alive because he has changed you and is changing you. And there's something undeniably at work in your lives that you simply cannot deny. Anybody other than me? 
You know it. You're in it. You know he's alive. And the good news is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. That his death was sufficient for all of our sin, even the least of these. If you're here this morning in your heartache, because he lives, because he lives, you have hope. If you're here this morning in the midst of fear, confusion, don't even know exactly why you're here, um, because he lives, peace and abiding joy can be yours. You're here this morning in the midst of doubt, because he lives, he can bring you faith. You're here this morning in the midst of guilt and sin, because he lives, you can be forgiven and free, showered with his grace. Well, the last verse in our chapter, John 20. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen? Amen. So, so here's where I want to land today, where John 20, 31 lands. I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. And all I'm going to do is confess to Christ this, I am a sinner. What he already knows to be true, the reason he came and bore my sin on the cross is because he was way ahead of me on that one. But I'm going to agree with him that I am in need of a Savior. And here's the other thing, I'm going to declare that I don't trust in my righteousness. I'm done with that. That's a tiring, rigorous, and often religious way to live. But it is not a redeeming way to live. I'm going to trust in the righteousness of Christ. And I'm going to ask that even in the midst of my sin and guilt and heartache and confusion and doubt, that he would meet me with the truth of his resurrection and not just save me, but change me. And any one of you that would like to pray that prayer with me this morning, these things were written that you might believe and that believing you might have new life. Will you bow your head with me? Father, I stand before these people a sinner in need of a Savior. Father, I confess my sin to you. Lord, I do not trust in my own righteousness to save me in any way, form, or fashion. My own righteousness led me on a path to death. And Lord, I am standing here in gratitude of the good news of the gospel, that you came lived a righteous life, died a perfect death, is an atoning sacrifice for my sins. So Lord Jesus, I put my trust in you. I place my trust in you. My desire, Lord Jesus, this morning is to encounter you, a risen Lord, a risen Savior. And Lord, I ask you, will you be alive in me? Thank you, Lord, that you died for my sin and you rose conquering sin and death. Thank you for new life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, according to the word of God, you've been given exactly what John 20 says, 2 Corinthians 5 says, you've been given a new lease on life. You're a new creation. Here's what I would ask. We're going to go to a time of communion, and uh, as we often do, I'm going to ask the elders, I'm going to ask the elders and staff this morning if they will make sure we got somebody in every one of these gaps, front and back. Here's what I'm going to ask. If you prayed with me this morning to receive Christ, will you do one thing for us? Will you either share that with the person that you came with or one of our elders? 
in one way or another, will you come up and will you let one of our staff or elders who are around these tables, will you let us take communion with you this morning? We would like to pray for you, take communion with you as you've received Christ and have new life in him. Communion every week, we take it to celebrate the body broken, the blood shed for our sin, that we might have new life in Christ. If you feel like you're in unrepentant sin, then abstain from the table for a week until you get right with God and with whoever else you've wronged. But if your conscience is clear, you love Jesus with your whole heart, then you come in celebration this morning that he's died and he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. And so we celebrate the communion table this morning. The tables are open.